0: Welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is a kind of a uh, departure for me. It's not a comedy, it's not a horror movie, it's not something goofy from the 80s. This is a very raw emotional drama called American History X from 1998 a very, very memorable, gripping, dramatic movie that I happen to think has a great message, and I have always been a really big fan of this movie for a couple of reasons, which we will get into here. But I'm just saying, for the most part, if you've listened to most of my episodes, a lot of them are comedies. This one will most definitely not be a comedy. We're going to try to do a very serious discussion of a very serious movie. And my co-host for this episode he is a first-timer, someone I only really know through Facebook. We don't really know each other all that well. He is just someone that I had thrown this movie out a couple months ago. Hey, I want to do an episode on American History X. And he wrote and said, oh, that, I love that movie. Let's talk about that one. And so we kind of met each other. But this is my first time meeting him, and I just want to welcome him to the show. He is a filmmaker. Welcome, Austin Herring.
1: Thanks. Thanks. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I'm – i Concur. Everything that he said about me is true. I'm a filmmaker, and uh, I do love the film American History X. I think it's uh, a fantastic film. It was a very influential
0: film for me, and I'm excited to talk about it. Now, okay, first off, I know you have a lot of projects. You make films, you do things on the web. First, I'd like you to tell us about that, kind of introduce yourself to the audience and also to me, and then I'd like to hear why this movie is so influential to you.
1: Oh, okay, sure. Um so I uh mostly I do commercials uh to if I'm if I'm being honest and and blunt, uh which are are fun. I I enjoy doing commercials, but uh I also I have a feature uh called Pink uh that uh, just kind of got finished uh with the film festival circuit. Um and we're now trying to package it for distribution and uh people depending on how nerdy they are, people may know my web series, "Mana Screwed, which is about uh, Magic the Gathering.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> so you're a man. OK, I I, my son is into Magic the Gathering. I do not know it whatsoever. So you are the expert here.
1: Yes. If if uh, if, if we get into the Magic the Gathering aspects of American History X, <laughs> uh, I, I think that you should defer to my expertise. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. There were several deleted scenes where Derek Vineyard was playing Magic the Gathering. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, – I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm guessing it's not.
0: <laughs> okay, so why is this movie in particular influential to you? Um, this movie is influential to me because it,
1: it's a little hard to nail down. I, I feel like it hits you emotionally. I, it is a movie that makes you want to get up and do something – in it, like, so powerfully that I feel like, I, I feel like very few movies execute that feeling so well. Um, a lot of movies, you know, I love, uh, but they don't make me want to go get up and like change the world. Uh, or they have a very powerful message and, um, and I like, maybe I agree with that message, but it, it just, it doesn't stir that need to go out and do something. It proactively in my real life, the way that American History X does. And I think it, it, it just it does that really, really effectively. So for me, I, when I watched American History X, I, I, as a filmmaker, I before, sorry, before I was a filmmaker, I, I remember going, that's the kind of film that I want to make. Someday I want to make a movie that makes people feel the way that I felt finishing up watching this movie.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I I was just listening to where you were going with that, and I'm like, you know what? You're right. Like, this is one of those rare movies that feels to me like it could make a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, most movies are kind of silly, just, you know, mindless entertainment. You go and watch them. Like, this one you come out of thinking – there was a really valuable lesson, and I will – I will I will do a quick little summary here because m- there might be people who have not actually seen this movie. This movie is about a skinhead, a white nationalist skinhead played by Edward Norton, who Sees the errors of his ways and realizes that hate is not a good way to be living your life. He goes through a traumatic experience. We will talk about that. He comes out of jail, tries to change his life and doesn't want to do that anymore. But now it's a problem because he's got a younger brother who follows in his footsteps. And Derek wants to end this legacy before his brother can repeat all the same mistakes. Yep. Okay, yeah. So we'll get into this. Again, this is a very heavy movie. And For it, sure. Yeah, and it's not without controversy. There's a several controversies, and I think we'll go over those before we get into this movie, is that, A, this movie's kind of notorious because the director, Tony Kay, is that his name? Uh, I think so. And the star, Edward Norton, did not like each other, and they fought over how the movie should be made to the point that the director ended up taking his name off the movie and, in protest, suing the studio. Wow. So, like, there's this huge controversy over whose movie this really is. Is it the vision it started as? You know, how did it end up? I know there's some controversies. Like, I happen to love this movie. I think it's a near-flawless movie. It's amazing. But if you go to some of the reviews, there's a lot of ten stars, and there's a lot of, like, one and two stars. People that think it's very incredibly flawed, and it really doesn't do a good job. So, it's like, the opinions of this movie are very divided, I've found. Interesting. I
1: will say... Um, I just rewatched it in, in preparation for this, and I will say it it feels a lot more dated uh, than I than I remember. I mean, it just it feels very much like a '90s movie. And on top of that, I know it's like a low budget '90s movies, And nowadays, low budget you, you still have you know the the just about top end digital camera. You know, low budget films now don't look as bad compared to big budget films as films did back then and it's you know it's got some some bumps along the road and the production value is is not the best but i i think that it, it really holds up really really well and still is an incredibly powerful movie to a degree of which i i feel like very
0: few movies are Yeah, no, I'd agree with you. I I am totally against the idea that this movie is like hugely flawed or Mm -hmm. even like I hear some people say, oh, that's an offensive movie. I'm like, if you just look at this movie on the surface and you say it's offensive, I think you kind of missed the whole point of the movie.
1: I I would agree.
0: (laughs) Although I will throw out a question for you. The lead character of this movie, a skinhead with a swastika emblazoned across his chest where you who ends up being the hero of the movie. Could this movie be made today?
1: I feel like – I wish that this movie could be made today, and I I, I don't – the answer is I don't know, but I think that it should. I think this is the kind of movie that we need today um, more than the kind of movies that we're getting because I, I feel like this is a movie that does not preach to the choir. This this is a movie that actively – I don't know. what What's the opposite of preaching to the congregation? Uh, what What's the – like – when you when you deliver a message to the people who need to hear it um i feel like this movie does that i know that oh what's the what's the one that gets all the hate that won the oscar are we taking crash crash yeah yeah crash i know everybody hates crash because it's this kind of like whitewashed like we fixed racism at the end type of a movie right mm-hmm. and this is not that this is this is gritty they don't solve racism at the end of this it presents this as this huge unsolvable problem but man we gotta step you know we got a step closer it's basically it's not a pat yourselves on the back for feeling better about the state of the world for having watched the movie. It's a, no, like go, like now, now go do something because this is still a problem. That's, that's kind of the thing that this does so well in that it's, it's the story of the salvation of one or, or really two people, the, the two brothers. And you know that that makes a difference because two people make a difference. Yes, we haven't solved racism, but, Every single person that you prevent from going down that path is 18 more conflicts that create 18 more people, you know, mm-hmm. the movie is very clear about hate begetting hate and that saving one person absolutely matters.
0: I was gonna say, it's really interesting you compared this to Crash or at least brought it up because mm-hmm. that's the movie that I think of the most when I watch American History X because I don't know, are you in La- Are you in California? Where do you live?
1: I, I am. I, I live in Los Angeles.
0: Okay, so you in Los Angeles? Los Angeles is a very interesting city because it, it is a lot of groups, ethnicities, you know, different factions of society all colliding with each other at all times. Yeah, and that's why I like Crash. Like, I think Crash is kind of ham-handed the way it it covers it, but I like the idea of Crash, just that everybody's bouncing into each other in conflict at all times. And that's sort of the theory behind this movie too—that these white gangs, the the black gangs in Venice are always colliding, and then Edward goes to pr—Derek uh, goes to prison, and now you got you know the Mexican gangs, so everyone's colliding at all times, and it really just comes down to how do you deal with that? Do you treat it as a conflict, or do you treat it as like a learning experience? So I actually I'm a big fan of Crash, although that's that's a whole different conversation. Sure. Yeah, I,
1: I liked Crash fine. I don't. I'm. I'm. I know a lot of people hate it. Other people, I'm sure, love it. I, I liked it fine, and and but I, I don't think that it is nearly the film that uh, that American History X is. Personally,
0: I would agree with that. I, I just I like the Crash exists. I don't think it's as good. Okay, a couple of things I want to say. <laughs> I just have to tell the story. My all, one of my all time favorite movie viewing experiences is American History X. Now, to sum up, we'll get into the plot more later, but it is very much the very very. Uh, angry confrontations between black groups and white groups. And there are many words used in this movie. We will not be able to quote. We will dance around them.
1: I, so I was watching it um, and, and some people were at my house filming and I, I want, I was like, is it worse to go to like, to just let people wonder what, what I'm watching or <laughs> to go out and point out like, Oh, by the way, if you hear the N word, like excessively from my TV, I I'm watching American history X, not like YouTube videos. Um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's not a very quotable movie is, is the short version.
0: Yeah. What's funny is at the end of each one of my staff picks episodes, I do a little stinger, a little quote from the movie is like, that sums up the whole movie. I don't know if I can do that for this episode.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. the, the quote at the end, the, the Abraham Lincoln quote is, is great. I mean, obviously it's an Abraham Lincoln quote and not really a quote from the movie, but that's the, that's the closest you get. There's not really a good like, there's not really any quotable lines in the movie, honestly, which is weird for a movie this good.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, well, well, I'm going with my story is, well, I I'm from Seattle. I used to live in Seattle. I moved down to California in 1999. And the very first movie I ever saw in a theater in Southern California was American History X. Wow. And what I'm going to say is that Southern California is far more diverse, racially diverse than Seattle – will ever be. And so this is my experience. I'm lived down in Carson, Carson and Tor- Torrance. If people who don't know that area, this is like Quentin Tarantino land. This is where Jackie Brown is set. So I see a movie for the first time. My very first movie in Southern California is American History X. And it's all about the conflict between white and black people. And there's some very violent scenes towards black people, which are Very unpleasant, and we'll talk about those. And so we watch this very, very powerful movie, and then the lights turn on at the end, and I stand up, and this is the first time I have ever been in a theater where it's like all black people, and then I'm the one white person. I'm just kind of looking around, going, I apologize for that entire movie. Everybody in this theater, (laughs) it was the most awkward thing ever. Everyone just looking at each other on the way out of the theater. I'm like, this this is probably not the, the first movie I wanted to be in my Southern California experience. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's awkward. But uh, but cool, cool. I mean, cool way
0: to see that movie, too, I suppose. Yeah. A lot of lessons to be taken from this movie. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, before we go into the, the plot, Edward Norton, I just have to bring him up as an actor. Um, he is my wife's favorite actor. I have joked on Staff Fix before my wife is going to leave me for him. I know this. <laughs> this personally is my favorite Edward Norton performance. And that's saying something when Primal Fear also exists. So I just want to get that on the table. I think Edward Norton in this movie is one of the best acting performances I've ever seen because he literally plays two different characters. It's two different versions of Derek Vineyard, and they are so incredibly different. And it's astounding when you see how scary Edward Norton looks when he's all, you know, tatted up and he's bald. So I just got to give a shout out. One of the best acting performances I have ever seen in a movie.
1: Yeah, no, he's really fantastic. He, he. I would I would argue that it's not a very actor driven movie. It's it's much more like the story as a whole driven. It's not like the kind of movie where you 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 know you go to watch it for for the performances, but that doesn't stop his performance from really being excellent and a, a standout, uh, standout performance. And and I would probably agree with you. I, I I'm I'm trying to think of like what performance, if there's any, that I like of his better. And I can't think of any, and yeah, and and, uh, again, yeah, he's a fantastic actor, um, and this is
0: probably his best role. Yeah, and this is only like his third or fourth movie, too. Yeah. (laughs) Like, he comes out of the gate with Primal Fear, and we haven't talked about Primal Fear on Staff Picks, but if you guys have never seen Primal Fear, go watch that. That is a masterclass in acting, and then American History X, he may even top that. So, just astounding. All right, so Austin, are you ready to to carefully delve into the storyline of this movie? Let's do it. Okay, so again, this movie is the story of a skinhead, a Nazi named Derek Vineyard, who is like the king of all skinheads. that's see we're in the city of Venice, California. there's black street gangs, there's white street gangs and Derek is the leader of the white street gang. And he is, we would you say a legend among the skinhead community?
1: Yeah, that sounds accurate.
0: As, as skinhead legends go, this guy is the top one, and the movie opens with, it opens, oh, oh, I forgot to mention this, that there's two parts of this movie, the present and the past. The present is always told in color, and the black and white is always the past, so we'll have to make that n- notation here. Now, I have to ask you, ask you as a filmmaker, Austin, Yeah. do you like that use of time, black and white is the past, color is the present, or do you find that kind of amateurish?
1: No, no, I, I I like it especially here. I I I see it a lot on like TV shows and, and stuff now where they do stuff like that and it, and it is a little bit of a of a cheat. Um, I feel like, but at this time, I feel like American History X was probably one of the first, had to have been a, an early adopter of using that mechanism. And so, in that way, like you, you can't go back in time and and say, wow, what a what a jaws not showing the shark well how you know that's such a cheap trick now to build mystery everybody does it that way why can't you just you know like if, if you invented the thing and not saying that that uh american history x invented it but it was certainly one of the more early ones so uh, at that time and no as a general statement i don't think it's amateurish i think it can be amateurish when done lazily but uh, but here i think it's it's a very easy way to tell when we are because the movie jumps around in time a lot and otherwise it might become confusing. And so they fixed that by doing the color thing.
0: So here we go. The plot of the movie, it starts in the past. It starts in black and white And we are going to see the lead-up to a murder. This is the life-changing event that's going to happen to this kid, Derek, the skinhead, that uh, it starts with him in his house, and he's got a little brother, and they have a whole little family. We'll talk about that family later. And they hear outside somebody breaking into their car. And it turns out there's these three black guys in a car they've driven by. They have snuck up to this house, and they're breaking into Derek Vineyard's car, which is a sure way to incite gang warfare want to break into the other gang members car and this is going to lead to some very bad things here that will have huge ramifications for years
1: so the younger brother edward furlong uh hears the commotion outside sees the the robbers goes in and tells his older brother edward norton who's at the time having sex with his girlfriend um hey there's some some guys outside trying to steal your car and edward norton grabs his gun Goes outside, shoots the one that's at the the door, the the, the one that's breaking into the car starts to run away, and he shoots that one as well, and then chases after the the getaway car, the car that they arrived in, uh, also firing uh, at, at that car, but that one does get away.
0: Yeah. So basically Edward Norton fights off the bad guys, or I won't say bad guys. He fights off the people breaking into his house and kills one, chases another one off. And there's one wounded guy that Derek has shot him. He's wounded. He's laying there on the curb. And Derek is going to walk up and murder him in a especially savage way that we will see later in the movie. And I absolutely hate the scene everyone hates the scene in fact i will tell you austin when i mentioned i was doing american history x the first 10 comments from facebook and twitter today were are you going to talk about the curb scene yeah like how would we how would we not talk about that
1: yeah oh obviously it's it's that is the memorable scene i don't hate that scene fyi but i have a i suppose stronger stomach uh than most i think it's brilliant um and i and as a result i love it. it it's such a I heard a story recently, I was on a shoot with someone who, maybe I should save this story for when we get to the to the the actual scene itself, but yeah, I'll save it for that.
0: Okay, we'll save it, we'll, we'll put off, hold off on that one. Okay, so this is the murder, Derek is about to murder this black guy against the curb, and it will have huge ramifications, but we're not going to see what happens for now, and now we flash forward, now we're in the present day, this is 1997 Venice Beach High School, And now the story is all about his younger brother, Daniel. Wait, yeah, Daniel. Danny. I always get them mixed up. But the younger one is Danny. And it gets confusing because the actors are Edward Furlong and Edward Norton. The characters are Derek and Danny. But yeah, Danny, the younger brother, has – Danny has been asked to write a paper for his history class about his civil rights, a famous civil rights hero. And he has chosen Adolf Hitler – and he wrote a paper called my mind Kampf. and the teacher and the principal are a little disturbed by this.
1: Yeah. Uh, to, to say the least. Um, but what's interesting here is um, doing the, the my mind comp paper um, is the, and, and it, it's unclear it, the way that it's presented. He, it seems like he must be a vice principal or something. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a little bit more authority than your, your average uh, teacher. Uh, but it's Elliot Gould, and I don't know the other actor's name. Avery Brooks is his name. Avery Brooks. Yeah. Avery Brooks. And so uh, Elliot Gould is is very much taking the stance of um, this kid is hopeless. Like it, 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 we don't get really, it's not clear what Elliot Gould is ar- arguing for, but it seems like he's like, let's expel him. You know, th- this is a hopeless case. And uh, Avery Brooks is. Definitively arguing against that, like no, there's still some hope for kid. This kid who it it's clear all these teachers know is a skinhead racist, and the black teacher is arguing on his behalf. I, I find that um, uh, it already creates some some intrigue there, um, and I think that that's relatively how we leave the scene is just the two of them uh, discussing this. Eventually, Avery Brooks calls uh, Edward Furlong uh, Danny into the into his office and says listen from now on i'm your history teacher you're going to report to me every every single day and you I, I expect a new paper due to me tomorrow and pointedly the uh, the new class is called american
0: history x okay yeah that let's let me let me delve into that a little bit here like like you said the guy's name is principal sweeney he is the avery brooks the black principal of the school or vice principal one of the two and he has a history with these kids He knows that Derek, the older brother, went to jail for murder, and he is a huge skinhead legend, but Sweeney knows this kid was gifted. That kid was amazing, one of the smartest kids that ever came through school, and, like, I cannot believe he got turned to this skinhead rhetoric crap, and I'm going to save the younger brother, because the younger brother is also gifted. So, like you said, it's a very interesting of events that the black principal is fighting for these skinheads, saying, I'm not going to kick them out. I'm going to do whatever I can to save this younger brother so he doesn't turn into the older brother. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into this American History X here. So, yeah, so Principal Sweeney calls the younger brother in and he says, You know, I know your older brother was just let out of prison today, and I know you're probably acting up because, you know, you want to impress him. I don't know why you're handing in this crap, this Adolf Hitler paper. And the younger brother argues, well, that's a great paper. I got an A on it. And so all, it all becomes, well, just because you could doesn't mean you should. And this is where, yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the principal says, you, we're going to take this paper. I'm going to throw this in the garbage. You're going to write me a new paper. I want you, every day, you're going to sit in my office. We're going to talk about American history from a civil rights perspective, from a contemporary current events perspective. And we're going to talk about it. And I want you to write me a new paper, and the paper is entitled My Brother. Tell me about your brother, how and why he went to prison, how it shapes your worldview, and the impact on your life and your family. And so it actually sets up the narrative to this movie because now it's all about let's learn about Derek here.
1: Yeah, so and, – and this is interesting to me, um, and, or, and maybe I should save the, the criticism or the, the analysis of it for later, but uh, it's interesting to me because – we know uh very straightforward that this kid is a skinhead racist and yet we're we're presented very early on with this scene where he's kind of definitively the good guy mm-hmm. um we we encounter these bullies who are black um beating up this uh white nerd you know pre- pretty typical pretty typical high school bullying a- encounter in this specific instance the bullies are black and the the victim is white and then Edward Furlong kind of intercedes, stands up for the nerdy kid and uh, and and kind of gets the uh the the bullies to back off and leave. We know that he's doing it for the wrong reason, but it, it's a, it's an effective tool of getting you to uh getting you to kind of root for this character despite him being you know an otherwise unlikable character
0: yeah it's it's i've noticed that when I was watching it I took that in my notes that it's really interesting how. Every time someone goes down the path of racism or hatred in this movie, they kind of start from a place of, I wouldn't say nobility, but a a sense of, they start from a place of common sense. Yeah. And they even say, this is how the gangs start in Venice. The kids feel like they're in danger. They band together. They need safety in numbers. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, they band together by the color of their skin. And so what starts off, starts off as proactive protection now becomes straight up racism like, oh, those blacks are subhumans. They're out to get us. And you know, the blacks are probably saying very similar things as whites are all out to get us. And so like it starts off, Daniel or Danny, the younger brother is protecting a, g- a kid in the bathroom. But, you know, he's only protecting him for racism, not because of anything better. But it's really interesting. Like you said, he's presented as almost the good guy here. Right. Now, the kid that the black kid that Danny stands up to in the bathroom is like a bully in the school. and They don't get along. You get the sense the black kids and the white kids don't get along real well. And they have a little stare down in the bathroom. And Danny, who's just a young punk, blows smoke in the black kid's face. And the black kid says, you know, you're going to die, white boy, you're a little punk. And unfortunately, this will, we're going to spoil this a little bit, lead to some very tragic consequences later in the movie. But it's very, it's a quick little showdown here between two kids that clearly don't like each other. Right. That's the end of Danny's story for the day. Now we're going to cut to Derek and we cut to a scene. This is a really important scene that I always forget is in the movie where Principal Sweeney goes to the prison, Chino prison, where Derek is getting out and he informs them. You have a celebrity getting out of prison today. I need to fill you in on his backstory, and we meet. This is where we start learning about Edward Norton's backstory.
1: And uh, and so they watch this video, um, and it's clear that the father died, um, and and we get a little bit of this uh, 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 rage um, coming from this son who's mourning over his father's death, and and in it you hear you 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 very clearly see the beginnings of the character that he, that he becomes
0: it's a videotape for to clarify for people that were listening they're watching a videotape of young derek vineyard before he was a skinhead and we see the roots of how he became a skinhead
1: uh yeah and it's it's very tight and we will see i feel like much more clarity on that uh in the end uh, of the movie but we we see the beginnings of that character in this in this rhetoric that isn't I I don't know. Like, it's not inherently evil rhetoric, but it's it's very clearly he's very clearly going off in in a direction. And and the death of his father has been a significant push um, much further down that direction Um, is made very clear in this scene with uh, with the principal.
0: Yeah. Okay. So for people who have not watched this movie recently, Derek Vineyard is just a normal, gifted kid in high school. His father's a firefighter. And what happened is his father was out uh, fighting fires at a drug den. He had called to a call. And while he was fighting the fire, he was shot and killed by a black drug dealer and this has set something off in young Derek, we see this videotape where you kind of see the roots of where it's going to go and it says, you know, you see a videotape an interview with him on the news after his father was shot, and Derek says, you know I don't even know why my dad had to be there it's just junkies, it's just black people, and like, they have no respect for life, they don't care, they just shot a hard man, a man who was, you know, working hard to support his family, and then Derek starts him with a rhetoric, you know, you know, the Mexicans the blacks, the Asians, they're all, they're all social parasites, they, they just come here and they just want to take all our rights. So you can see where all this came from. And he starts off from a feeling of just helpless anger. But you're going to see later this translated into something much more uh, evil, not quite the right word, much more aggressive would be the word, where he starts, he makes it basically a a crusade against anybody in his neighborhood or town who is not white. He thinks they're against him. And we see the whole backstory of Derek Vineyard. He was recruited by this man named Cameron Alexander, who's a local middle-aged white supremacist. Derek became his number two man. And Derek just basically, through this incident where his father died, became the number one skinhead in Venice Beach.
1: So so then that's when uh, the uh, Edward uh, Furlong, uh, Danny's internal monologue begins, which is the beginnings of, uh, of the recurring throughout the, the film. We'll hear the internal monologue that is the paper that he's formulating uh, about his brother. And while he's beginning this, he's kind of walking through the streets of Venice, I think, walking home from school. Uh, and he comes to this uh, basketball court. This out, uh, outside basketball court and sees the bully kid and kind of stares him down in a way that is clearly like aggressive towards the bully. The bully, you know, sees the glances and and they there's a bit of a stare down. And then we begin this flashback of another scene that uh, that took place in the same basketball courts.
0: Do you live anywhere near the Venice basketball courts?
1: No, I, I'm uh, I'm up in Van Nuys, so. Uh, But I've I've
0: definitely been there. Yeah, I, I I would explain this to people who are not from Los Angeles. The Venice basketball courts, a very notorious movie location. You see them in a lot of movies. White men can't jump, being probably the most famous. There's always guys out there playing basketball. White guys, black guys, you know, anybody. It's just, it's very chaotic street basketball. It's a my family, my wife and I, and kids and I love going out to Venice. I just love that place. There's always a lot of energy in Venice. But it is a very chaotic place, and the basketball courts are real. And we see them here that there's a incident where young Derek Vineyard, Edward Norton you know, is trying to get the white kids in town to band together against these kids They're being bullied and, like, he sees all these minorities moving in and taking over his turf and he says, one way we can get it back is by chasing them out of here and it all comes like this climactic basketball game that we see in the past in black and white where Edward Norton, you know, Takes off his shirt, revealing full-on swastika, and he leads the white kids in a game against the black kids. It's basically for control of the courts. Whoever loses has to leave the area, and Derek was a good basketball player. He ends up beating the black kids, which I f- probably find somewhat unlikely. I don't know if Edward Norton can dunk a basketball, but right. yeah, that's the premise of the movie, that Edward Norton led the white kids in this game. He chased the black kids out of the area, and from here on out, he's a legend to every you know racist, pseudo-skinhead in the area. Right.
1: But this also, um, as is, uh, it's evident by his uh, pretty unique hairstyle. Um, the main uh, black guy that they're playing against in the basketball scene is the uh, the person who we will see have a pretty gruesome death later in the um, in the flashback to that moment that altered uh, Derek and Danny's life forever. Yeah,
0: I forgot about that. That's the same guy. <laughs>
1: It is. He is the he is the carjacker. Um, So this this is clearly we're
0: positioned to believe this leads to that thing that happened. So it's the basketball game. The basketball game changes many things. Okay. although I do have to point out it's a little L.A. geography. Now, people who are not from the area will not get anything out of this. But being from the area, I love this, that in the movie they live in Venice, but Edward Norton's in jail in Chino. Now, Venice and Chino are nowhere near each other. I live down by Chino. I live in Upland. So I know that's a long drive, Venice to Chino. But in the movie, <laughs> Edward Norton gets out of prison in Chino at 7 in the morning, and then Danny is at school at 8 in Venice, which I know would never possibly happen. Hmm. They're nowhere near each other. But in the movie Magic, Venice and Chino are right next to each other.
1: Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say uh, if, if they were in Marina del Rey and he had to be at school uh, in an hour, I don't think that that's possible in L.A. traffic.
0: Now, should I go into the Californians from SNL and say that you take the 5 to the 405 to the 91 and get out of there?
1: I, but for those of you who don't live in, in Los Angeles, the greater Los Angeles area, traffic in L.A. is pretty bad and uh, you can't get anywhere.
0: <laughs> yes, especially not walking from Venice to Chino and back in an hour. <laughs>
1: yeah. 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 That, that might take, you know, an hour and 10 a, hour and 15 is probably,
0: probably more, uh... <laughs> a little longer. Okay. So, so here we are in the present and this is a very important part of the movie that Derek Vineyard, the legend of skinheads, Edward Norton is out of prison. He's been in prison for three years because of the murder. He has come home and Danny rushes home to meet him. And this is like the big event in his life. His brother's out of prison, but we find out that Derek has changed significantly. He's no longer a skinhead, doesn't have the shaved head anymore, doesn't have the swastika prominently displayed at all times on his chest. He's out of prison, and he's a different person now, and right from the start, the two brothers are going to have conflict.
1: Uh, The younger brother pointedly says something about, oh, man, your hair, like, you've got to, we got to get rid of that, and you get again great acting from from Edward Norton just this twinge of like ah oh, yeah i'm just going to brush that off and not talk about it and and he comments on on his younger brother's buzzed uh, or or shaved head uh in a way that that you get the impression that he's displeased about but doesn't want to come across like he's displeased about there's there's definitely tension and then uh he gets called away uh on a phone call Uh, leaving uh, the younger brother with the rest of the family, and then uh, old Ethan Supley comes out.
0: Yeah, okay, there's one other skinhead. I mean, there's a lot of skinheads in this movie. Pound for pound, it's your most bang for the buck in skinheads per movie. But there's one especially prominent one, Ethan Supley, playing this big guy named Seth. And Seth is an especially aggressive, angry skinhead. And he is over to the house. He has come to welcome Derek back home. And you get the sense he's over there all the time. He's grooming Danny to be the next big skinhead in the area. And the family hates him. They hate this guy. He's just an asshole. And Derek doesn't seem to like him much either. But this whole segment here is Derek coming home to this world he does not want to be a part of anymore. But Seth is still there. And Seth is, like, running the house, just... Spewing off racist propaganda, how blacks are subhumans, getting Danny to talk about it as well. And the family just hates it. You can tell they all hate this crap.
1: But it, I will say it's clear that um, Seth and Derek were, were initially very close friends. Uh, while it's clear that Seth is always kind of like the joke uh, guy that everybody, you know, doesn't really like, but like he hangs around. He maybe he's a little annoying, but they were definitely tighter once upon a time. And so the fact that, uh, Edward Norton's character Derek is does not seem happy that Seth is there is is a big signal that like something's different about him. It's not just that his hair has grown out. Uh, he he's changed because he seems pointedly unhappy that Seth is there, but pretends not to be and and gives a big show of like a warm welcome i'm happy to see my friend i just want a few minutes to talk with my family can i catch up with you in a little bit man uh type of a vibe so uh that's definitely an interesting again subtle subtle acting and 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 interesting stuff from edward norton
0: there's one especially important detail about this scene that i think what makes this maybe the most important scene in the movie is that we learn that when he was in prison for three years derek refused any visits from his family. His family was not allowed to visit him in prison. And Derek, you know, he has no knowledge of what's been going on at home during his absence. And so there's a lot of things in this scene that are kind of subtle clues. Derek says, oh, this apartment's different. It's, It's smaller than our old living room. So a lot of tragedy has befallen this family in the years that he's been in prison. He was like the sole breadwinner. And we get this, we hear later, his mom has emphysema from smoking. We get there's a clue she may indeed have lung cancer. So she has no income, they've downgraded to this crappy little apartment, and Daniel, the younger brother, is now following in all the racist footsteps, so Derek comes home for the first time and sees all this. He sees how far his family has fallen in three years, and between that and the fact that he went through a traumatic experience in prison, which we were going to hear about in a minute, Derek's world has completely fallen apart here. This is not the world he left, and he doesn't like it. It's way different than what he was expecting. So Derek, you know, takes his younger brother inside and says, did you write a paper on Adolf Hitler? And then the younger brother's like, yeah, it was awesome. And Derek's like, no, that is not awesome. I don't want you doing that. That was the principal just called, blah, blah, blah. Stop this crap now. I don't want you doing this. I don't want you following my footsteps. I know there's a big party tonight. Welcome home party for me. I don't want you to be there. So he basically tries to nip all this in the bud for his younger brother right now. And this is where now we get a little more flashback of Danny upstairs writing the paper about his brother. And we see the rise of power and, again, how Derek became the kingpin in Venice. And this is the, uh, the uh, mini-mart scene.
1: Yeah, and uh, one thing that I think is really interesting, I just want to touch on it before we go there. But uh, there's just a, a quick shot where uh, Edward Furlong's character, uh, the younger brother, is typing on his laptop. And he, he clearly doesn't know what to to start the paper with or, or, or what to continue the paper with. And he just keeps retyping and retyping. And finally he puts people look at me and see my older brother. Um, and I think that that's interesting because it shows there's, there's a real, uh, the movie repeatedly touches on impressionability of, of young people and the, the people that they look up to and you're, you kind of the responsibility, um, that you have to um, those who look up to you to be a good example because consistently you, you see it uh, later in the movie from Edward Norton, but here you see it uh, from Edward Furlong and throughout the movie also you see it from Edward Furlong. But there's this sense that like, I need to be like this person, this other person. Um, and I think that that's really interesting. And that's where we go into uh, the supermarket scene. A- Edward Furlong kind of sets the stage for us in uh, in a monologue, I, I believe Uh, where he talks about how charismatic his brother is and how, um, like the strategy that they went to recruit with and how they found new members. And it was always, uh, these angry people who had, who had experienced real loss and had some, had something genuine to be upset about. And they used that to recruit them. And then you see Edward Norton give this, this big, impassioned, uh, speech, um, about, Gosh, I don't even remember the details of it, but it's it's it is pointedly racist, but it's very rooted in protecting ourselves. That 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 what what we have, what we built, that is great, is being threatened and being invaded, and and these people are taking from us and hurting us, and we and it is time that we stood up for ourselves.
0: Yeah, that's one thing I always find interesting about this movie, is that every time someone goes on a racist rant about every other minority and every other race taking our stuff, the speeches always start off logically. Yeah. They all start off, you know what, we should do this, we need to protect ourselves, you know, there's problems we need to band together and we can solve the problems, and they all start from that place, and then, yeah, like you said, we see a flashback. This is a flashback to a couple years ago when Edward Norton was the lead skinhead and he's straight up doing a Hitler monologue, basically. Like, you know, for our pride, we must do this. This is how we will be able to win our neighborhood back and make it great again. And I, I pointedly used uh, make America great again, unfortunately. But yeah, that's the, uh, that's the speech that Edward Norton gives. And it's a really a fantastic speech until it subtly becomes a huge racist rant. And it's really interesting how he gets there.
1: It's the same thing. It's the same thing uh, later in the movie where uh, they're having dinner with Elliot Gould and, and and I know we'll get to this. I don't want to ruin stuff for people who are following along with us. I, I don't know why anyone would would listen to this if they haven't watched the movie and, and don't want it to be spoiled. Um, but uh, later when they're when they're having dinner with Elliot Gould and then again when he's having uh, the discussion with his father um, and the same thing, too, when they're showing the clip of him after the death of his father. It always starts out rational and sensible, and just you know maybe a little over the line, but then suddenly it switches, and you're like, oh whoa yeah. whoa okay. Um, and and that's something that that I think is one of the one of the things that makes this movie really fantastic um, is that they don't treat the racists like they're stupid. I feel like that's what we see mostly in media is, and I I understand the um, the the desire to do that in media to make it clear that like racists are stupid and and or evil and I think that that's that does a disservice I don't know maybe we'll we'll get into this when we start talking about the analysis but my my impression of of one of the reasons that we're seeing such a maybe maybe such a rise in um, numbers of, of white supremacists these days uh, is the fact that we 've depicted them in movies and TV shows as being either stupid or evil, and that th- those are your choices either they 're transparently viciously evil, or they 're just flaming morons and when when they 're presented with that over and over and over, this is what racists look like, then you encounter these like Richard Spencer types who are a little more eloquent, who are a little more sophisticated, who who don 't come off stupid or evil. And you're like, well, well, this is nothing like the cartoon that I've been seeing. People start to, to think, well, maybe I've been lied to all this time. Maybe these guys aren't so bad. I think that it would it, this movie does a better job because it portrays these people more accurately as being dangerous because they're charming and charismatic and not because they're stupid. And a lot of them, and I, I really appreciate that Edward Norton is portrayed as very intelligent. Um, and that, you know, yeah, I'm sure that there's plenty and, and probably the majority of racists are probably dumb, but they're not all dumb. And you, you need to be aware of that.
0: The really dangerous ones are not dumb. Yeah. And that's Edward Norton. Again, this, there's a really interesting speech here where he rallies all the skinheads and he, it's a really good speech. And like, you can see how people would be taken in by the speech. And it's, I think it's interesting that you said that like in the nineties, they would present these characters, not a hundred percent negatively because they're more like real people. This is how this kind of stuff happens. And it reminds me of another movie that came out right around this time, Arlington road. Have you seen Arlington road?
1: Oh, man. It's been such a long time. I, I remember loving it, but I, ha- I, I, don't, I don't remember enough about it to, to speak about it eloquently. But
0: it's the same thing. The, you know, the racist, terrorists ones, people want to blow up the government and kill everyone are not idiots. You don't see them coming. And so that's, yeah. that's how it works in real life. Like the really smart ones will recruit someone stupid to go do stupid stuff. But meanwhile, there's Edward Norton and this guy, Cameron Alexander off in the side that are, yeah. you know, the true masterminds and they're not getting any flack for it, but all the cops know those are the dangerous ones.
1: Right. And the, and the movie's very clear when, when, uh, when we're first introduced to that, uh, Cameron Alexander character. Uh they first mention him in that uh that that scene with the principal in the conference room uh where we get Edward Norton's backstory and they pointedly say, Well, what do we have on him? Nothing. He's clean. He's just he's filling kids' heads with racist propaganda. That's all he's... He's not committing any crimes. He's not doing any of the stuff that we can arrest him yeah. for.
0: And we see that here. We see that this is a very pivotal scene in the movie. It's a black and white flashback where Derek really took control of the Venice skinheads in that Cameron says, you know, let's go let's go wreck a mini mart. Let's go make a statement. But Cameron won't do it. He says, Derek, go talk to these kids. So Cameron drives away so he's not culpable and Derek rallies all the kids. He's like, you know, our neighborhood used to we used to have living wages our parents could work here or our friends could work here and now all these Koreans run the mini marts and they hire these you know undocumented aliens these Mexicans and don't pay them any money that's the only way they make a profit and they chase all of our parents and friends out of the, out of the, out of the area and he says we need to go into this mini mart and make a stand and like it's presented as we're doing something for the betterment of our neighborhood in fact i believe Derek Even says don't just be a punk be a part of something yeah so like it's presented a big raw, raw moment. We're going to make a stand. And it's this horrible scene. All these white kids rushing into the mini mart, beating up the Koreans and the Mexicans, dumping beans on the Mexicans, pouring milk on the Koreans to make them look white. Like it's a horribly racist scene, but this is the kind of stuff Derek became famous for. Cause he would lead the kids in stuff like this.
1: It really is. It's a pretty brutal scene of, uh, of them beating, uh, these, uh, supermarket employees pretty badly. And, uh, yeah, you said pouring, pouring beans all over this, uh, this one Hispanic, um, uh, cashier that clearly is fearing for her life. It, it, the, the way the scene's presented the the whole time you're watching it, you're kind of like, are they going to rape this woman? Are they going to kill this woman? It's very intense, uh, to watch. It doesn't feel like, oh, they poured some beans on her and it was, you know, it was kind of mean of them. Uh, it, it comes across as a very brutal scene and and there's multiple others that they are equally uh, uncomfortable with.
0: Derek has street cred. Let's just say that. He's not a legend. He lives up to his reputation. So next
1: we we, we see another interaction that, that, again, seems a lot more subtle at first. And it's uh, Elliot Gould, who we know from a previous scene, used to date the mother. And this is clearly from that time period.
0: Yeah, this is like three, four years ago before Derek went to prison. He was just becoming a Nazi. Yes.
1: Um, and Elliot Gould is mentioning, is talking about the Rodney King beating. Um, and is clearly like, he, we're not given a lot of Elliot Gould's positions in this. Um, they've clearly been having this discussion for a little bit, but Elliot Gould is clearly a little more nuanced about what's happening and is, is, is just having kind of an intellectual discussion about the nature of the riots that are happening in the wake of the Rodney King beating. And then, um, Edward Norton goes into another yet another rant that at first seems like intelligent points and very quickly um, escalates into more of the same.
0: Yeah. Let's uh, paraphrase some of the argument. here. I will try not to use Edward Norton's exact words, but yeah, Edward uh, Elliot Gould is over at the house. They're having a nice dinner with a, with a family friend and they just bring up the Rodney King riots and it all starts with, you know, it was mostly black people rooting in their, rioting in their own neighborhoods. And so they start talking about the root cause of why people would riot in their own neighborhoods against their own people. And Elliot Gould is trying to say, well, it's, that's just kind of the cycle of poverty. The people are helpless. They just strike out whatever is nearby. And Edward Norton says, no, it's because blacks are subhumans and are biologically designed to commit crime. They are inferior to the white man. And it goes it goes off the rails very quickly to the point. Yeah. It's a really nasty scene. It's a, like it's a very powerful scene and well acted, but Derek, Derek goes from zero to 60 very quickly. And it almost ends up in violence where he's threatening the, I'm not going to say the Jewish slurs, but he threatens his Jewish house guests and says, I'm going to kick your ass. If you don't get out of my house right now and stop sleeping with my mother.
1: Uh, And, and don't forget, he also uh, is, very is violently aggressive towards his uh, his sister in the scene as well uh, now it's not uh it's not super it's not like he punches her he she's trying he he feels like she has disrespected his girlfriend and uh and he says you need to apologize you you know you she listened to you while you made your point you need to listen to her while she makes her point the sister who's had enough of the racism is is like getting up to walk away now, and he at first bars her. Uh, then she she tries to pass, and he eventually he ends up grabbing her by the hair and like yanking her around. It, it's it it ends up being very violent, and I I think the mom and uh, even the little brother try to intercede, and I think he ends up throwing his sister uh, across the room by the back of her hair. Um, it's it's really intense. Elliot Gould is stunned standing uh there. And then in the wake of all this and all the tears is when uh Edward Norton now having you know taken off the mask of civility is like I see what you're doing, get the fuck out of here, stop sleeping with my mom. I don't want to see you here again, type of type of And
0: thing. that's I I really underscoring what we're saying here is that if you guys again, if you've not seen this movie you have never seen Edward Norton play a character like this. He's usually like the, you know, the the weaselly guy or the con artist. He's straight up scary in this movie. Like he gained 30 pounds of yeah. muscle. He is he is menacing. He is frightening looking and this scene right here, I could totally buy he would kill somebody. Oh yeah. Although, there's an interesting line here I have to point out, where at one point, the sister, uh, Edward Norton's sister, says, you know, I don't want to hear this KKK crap from you at the table. And Derek says, and I find this very interesting, like, oh, don't lump me in with those KKK, those low-rent rednecks. And again, this backs up our point. Yeah, like everyone thinks the KKK are the dangerous ones, these scary guys that are out there, you know, rioting and marching and stuff. But they're not the dangerous ones. They're just the ones you see. The, da- the real dangerous ones are the ones behind them you don't see.
1: And and it's interesting, you know, they they, they laugh uh, at at those accusations, and and you you see, there's clearly this, I don't know, this inside joke, this inside like this inside language that they that the the Kind of the, the two slap, two and a half, I guess, because Edward Furlong is a one toe kind of dipped in that, that sort of stuff at this point. Um, that the two racists at the table, like, find this being compared with the KKK funny because they do. They, they see the KKK as being, you know, a bunch of dumb hicks and they're doing something that's important. It's interesting. Uh, but the next thing that happens is the, uh, the mom, Chases after uh, Elliot Gould, and and they talk outside. It's it's pretty clear that he's breaking up with her, and and we see that it, it feels like this is the moment that he gives up on uh, on Derek, the older brother, uh, which we see from in that earlier scene that he has already given up on uh, on the older brother, and this is is largely why. The, at the beginning of the conversation, it's pretty clear that he hasn't um, given up on Derek. Uh, but after that confrontation, it's it's easy to see why you would.
0: Yeah, he's not dating a woman who has a scary future criminal son. Yeah, they can all see where this is going.
1: Yeah, who who blames him? You know, that's that's not something like if it's your own kid, like you got to fix him. But man, you know, if you're just kind of on a third date with the mom, man, that that. That doesn't seem worth it
0: to me. Uh, uh, there's a conversation here that I think is especially interesting, where the mom this is Beverly D'Angelo, who people might know from the vacation movies. she plays Edward Norton's mom. She's a very a, a role you're not used to her in, but she's very uh, yeah. vulnerable in this movie. but she's you know trying to get a man to date her, her kid's a monster, she can't do anything about it, and she tries to plead with Elliot Gould to stay with her, and she's like, "Please, he doesn't mean what he says. He's just a boy without a father." And then Elliot Gould says, no, it's worse than that. You don't know the world your children are living in. And he shakes her hand. Goodbye, Doris. That's it. And we learn that uh, the mom, Doris, then kicked Edward Norton out of the house that night. She said, you're a monster. I'm embarrassed you came out of my loins. I don't want you as my son anymore. Get out of here. And we learn this is the night of the murder, the, the infamous murder.
1: And, and also important to point out that uh, the sister uh, attacks Edward Norton with a baseball bat right after this, but, uh, obviously because of the way that he was violent towards her. Um, I think she says, like, I hate you or, or some, something like that as she does it. And he immediately softens up and apologizes for hurting her, makes it clear that he would never hurt her or uh, Edward Furlong, uh, that he loves his family. And that he he lost control, but but I, he never pointedly says that he's sorry. I don't think, but he he's very apologetic in his demeanor, and he's very overt that like I mean, you guys no harm. You're my family. I, I lost control a little.
0: It's the classic uh, wife beater. Oh, I love you. I'm sorry. I'd never hurt you. I just I lost control for a moment, but I'd never hurt you. But you can see it in his eyes. He probably would. He's Derek's got rage.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that's something that the movie touches on really well is is that underlying rage. The the principal uh, is the one who kind of gets into that the most when he when he says later in the film uh that I know where you are because I was there too. And and that's the thing that you really see. That's the difference between Flashback Derek and uh and and In Color Derek is uh is that the rage is gone. That's the that's the difference in the acting that uh, that Edward Norton is doing is that one character is filled with rage and the other character is not.
0: Yeah. And speaking of rage, it is now time to talk about the scene that nobody wants to hear about the murder.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So uh, we go back to uh, that night,
0: the night that he was kicked out of the house right after that dinner fight
1: correct um where the carjacking has just occurred he shot one uh, of the guy the guy the sentry at the door uh he sh- wounded the uh, the carjacker himself that was the that he played basketball against and he chased off the car now we're left with a wounded guy uh lo- wounded carjacker and edward norton grabs him carries him over to the sidewalk uh, tells him to bite the curb um, and then kicks the back of his head and uh, and and it, the, it's actually very minimal uh, we don't see this in gory detail it, it cuts away very quickly even even what little detail we do get to see but I mean viscerally you know what happened in that situation uh, and then the cops come arrest him and and we move on from there but obviously we need to stop pause briefly and, and talk about that, uh, um, that moment because it's, it's just, it's absolutely one of the more brutal things. And uh, it's, it's iconic in in film history as being just a really violent, brutal moment. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the, the racism that, that underlies it, you know, if it was just, if this was just like a gangster, you know, a Martin Scorsese movie um, and uh, a character has another character bite the curb and kicks the back of their head, It would be memorable, but the fact that it is a, it is a skinhead with a, like standing in boxers and combat boots in the middle of the street in black and white with a swastika tattoo on his, over his heart, doing this to a black guy, it it makes it, a lot more brutal.
0: Yeah. Like I said, this is the scene that everybody mentioned. Like, oh, are you going to talk about the curb stomping scene? I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure we are. But yeah, that one thing that you pointed out is you don't actually see as much as you think you do. Yeah. Is that he leans back to kick the guy in the back of the head and it cuts right at the moment of impact. So you don't actually see it, but you do see the guy put his teeth on the curb and he's terrified. He's helpless. Now, is this the movie – is this where the phrase curb stomping came from or was that a phrase before this movie?
1: I have to assume that it came from this movie. I should look that up. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you the story that I heard about this, I, and I can't remember where I heard it. I, I worked with somebody uh, uh, recently. Oh, no. You know what it is? I uh, I know the um, the DP um, that, uh, that worked on American History X. He's who I heard this from. Um, okay. And he was saying that that he believes that this filmmaker is brilliant, specifically because of that that scene, because of that shot. They were there shooting that scene, and he wandered away, and, and he was like, "This isn't good enough." I, I I don't remember what he said that it originally was. Maybe he shot the guy or like you know shot him in the back of the head, execution style, and and that was it. And and midway through, like maybe they shot it that way, and uh, and the director was like this isn't it like this isn't good enough. Like this needs to be something brutal. And he like wandered away, like down the street and just kind of paced um, for, for quite a while by himself. And they production just stopped waiting on him. And he finally came back and he was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And he had come up with the, uh, the curb stomp, which was not in the script and, uh, and was thought of on the spot, because they realized that it wasn't brutal enough and that this had to be a gut punch of a scene.
0: It's really interesting because that's the whole crux of the movies. These guys are trying to break into his car, and Edward Norton comes out and fights them off, and then takes this one guy who's helpless, drags him face-first over the curb, and then curb stomps him, and he ends up going to jail because the cops said it was excessive. Yeah, And I, I don't know if people know, legally that pro- that is what the law is. You are only allowed to do use a certain amount of force on someone who breaks into your home. And I know this, Austin, you might find this interesting, is that there's a, uh, on the True Crime Channel, there's a show called Hear No Evil, where they have audio tapes of crimes in progress. And they use that in a trial against somebody. And this reminds me of a really interesting case that this guy knew that kids, teenagers, were breaking into his summer home. So he set up a bunch of cameras and recorded them. And the cameras caught him. He caught the kids breaking into his house. And the kids tried to flee, and he shot one of them. And they said, help me, help me, please. I'm helpless. I give up. And he said, no, that's not good enough. And he, like, dragged them back into the house, tortured them, and then shot them again. And he went to jail. Wow. Because, again, there's a certain amount of force you're allowed to use to defend yourself. And if it's excessive, then it's considered murder, which backs up this as well. You're not allowed to torture somebody if they're helpless and already giving up. So that's... Legally sound, why he would go to jail, although I think he'd personally get more than three years, but he only gets three for this.
1: Yeah. Well, I, honestly, uh, I agree with that. that, seem, that that's one of – not to say that the movie has these big flaws because it, it helps the narrative of the movie move forward, and it's not egregious. But him only getting three years seems a little far-fetched. Given the severity and the brutality of the the murder that's committed, and the fact that this guy like is covered with swastika tattoos, like it's it's clear that it was racially motivated. The the excessive use of force, so you know, seems like he got off pretty light.
0: Yeah, although there is a little loophole in there that Danny in his paper says Edward uh, Derek only got three years. He would have got life if I would have testified, but I chose not to. That's true. So maybe they just didn't have enough evidence to prove, I don't know. But anyway, this whole scene, like Edward Norton was nominated for for Best Actor for this movie as well. He should have been because he's incredible. This is the scene they always use. It's not so much the curb stomp, but afterwards when the cops come and arrest him and Edward Norton turns towards his brother, Danny, and he's like proud of what he just did. And he's like raising his eyebrows and smiling and he's all tatted up and muscular. And he like he is just one scary looking mother effer. Like Edward Norton just is scary in this. And this is this was his Oscar scene right here.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Um. So then we we flash back to the present and uh, Edward uh, Furlong um, has some friends come to pick him up. Edward Norton uh, goes off with uh, Ethan Supley, and, uh, and they arrive at the rally, which is kind of an impromptu welcome back for for edward norton's character the older brother
0: let's clarify this for people we're in the present now derek has had the horrible half past he murdered a guy went to prison he's out of jail now he's no longer a skinhead tonight we're in the present and it's the welcome back party at cameron alexander's house and derek does not want to be there but he feels that he probably has to
1: yeah uh he has there, there's some implication that like he needs to go there to do something um, and he keeps telling his brother to stay away but he he himself is gonna go so he gets there he definitely gives the vibe that he doesn't want to be there and Edward furlong's friends who we just saw at the door um, picking up Edward Furlong uh, the younger brother's friends are in awe of the older brother like he's he's a legend like he's it, it feel it's weird because they're they're friends with his brother but like they they they're excited to meet this guy because of how much they've heard about this guy. So then we see his ex-girlfriend who, who we've met in a few uh, scenes. She sees him and, and she starts kissing him. Uh, and we cut to uh, Edward Furlong, who's sitting with, uh, with this ringleader, the, the the kingpin of the racists.
0: Yeah, Cameron. Okay, yeah, this I'm gonna I'm gonna go through this scene. This is a fairly long scene in the movie, but I want to skip through it because there's a lot after this I think is more important. But basically the gist of this is that Derek shows up at Cameron Alexander's party and he is there to tell the ringleader, stay away from my brother. Do not recruit my brother the way you recruited me. And Cameron Alexander's like, you just got out of prison. Again, he's very smooth talker. Stacey Keach plays this guy. Very smooth talk and racist, you know, white supremacist. He goes, I, you've been through a traumatic experience. Just take some time off. I like that you grew your hair back. You're you're done with all that skinhead crap. We can get into the big stuff now, like the recruiting and the internet. And Derek's like, no, I'm not doing this. Stay away from my brother. And it ends with Edward Norton punching him, punching the ringleader, and immediately wincing, knowing, oh my God, I just am about to have 800 skinheads come up here and kill me now.
1: Which is uh, exactly what, almost what what go we go to next is uh um he leaves he had previously had a bit of a of a discussion with the ex-girlfriend where he tries he's like come on leave like let's just let's walk away from this lifestyle uh he clearly still has feelings for her and she is repulsed by it she's she's not having it and uh thinks you know thinks maybe he's kidding at first and then as he's leaving uh they he he's trying to find his younger brother so that they can get out safely and they realize what, what he's done to uh the uh Cameron. And uh Ethan Suppley comes at him with a gun. The crowd has totally turned, they start calling him the N-word, they they like he's a traitor, he's the worst kind of traitor. Um and uh and and now he's probably gonna die here. But again, he Edward Norton's character is is very smart, very physically capable, and he is easily able to overpower uh, Ethan Suppley's character, um, get the gun away from him, uh, and and use that gun to to keep the crowd away from him long enough for for him to get away.
0: Yeah, and this is we're going to go through a very pivotal stretch of the movie, the last forty minutes, where. Edward Norton is now out of the gang life altogether. Look, I went through prison. I learned my lesson. I am not part of this white supremacist crap anymore. He almost dies. His girlfriend hates him now. She's calling him an N-lover. His buddy Seth is now trying to shoot him. All the skinheads want him dead because he has left the gang, and he's now, you know, punched Cameron Alexander, and on the way home, the younger brother catches up. Why did you do that? Why? Like, those are our friends. Those are our people. Why would you punch them? And now we're gonna get the backstory of what happened to Edward Norton in prison, which is my personal favorite part of this movie. Yeah, although it's very tough to watch, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. this is now we will see what happened to Derek in those three years in prison and why he had a change of heart and why he no longer once as in his own words, uh he says, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to be a part of this crap. I've changed. I don't I can't do this. And Danny says Man, what happened to you in prison? And here we go, black and white for the next forty-five minutes—the prison scene. The prison scene. So Edward Norton
1: uh, goes to prison. Uh, it's very clear that he's—he's he's now in. Right from the first shot, we see he's in over his head, and prison is not fun. He maybe got arrested in a in a you know flash of glory, but now that he's here, he's pretty powerless. Um, and there's a lot of scary guys around him. So, uh, we see right when he first goes out to the yard, um, and there's, there's a bench press and he's, he's outnumbered with, uh, people of color. Um, and, and he's very, very visibly, uh, a racist as soon as he takes off his shirt to, uh, to, to lift weights. But he does this purposely. He's like, you know what? I figure I'm in, I better like Fly my flag, my my racist flag and and hope that I get picked up by the the other white supremacists, uh, the white supremacist gang within the prison, which is exactly what happened. One
0: thing, one thing. Let me jump in real quick. Earlier in the movie, when Principal Sweeney confronts Danny about the Mein Kampf paper. Danny says, what are you going to do, throw me out of school? And the principal says, no, because the real world would eat you alive. You have no chance. And that's literally what we see here in prison. Derek thinks he's a big, tough skinhead, but he has no chance. He's just a kid against these hardened street criminals. He's toast in prison.
1: Right, right. Uh, As tough as he was in, like, you know, I don't know, cute little nice Venice Beach, not that it's that nice, but it's nothing compared to uh, to this prison with these hardened criminals. Um, and he's clearly in over his head. But he gets in with uh, the uh, the white supremacist gang.
0: Guys, guys who are all much bigger than him, of course. Let me point that out.
1: Yeah, he's, he's now the little guy. These guys look tough and serious. So the next thing that happens is uh, the job assignment – Edward Norton gets put on laundry duty and he's with a guy that uh, is pretty instantly lovable. I think.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Let me, let me talk about him for a second. So, Edward Norton's uh, work detail mate is a guy named Lamont, played by a stand-up comedian named Guy Tory, who I don't know. I actually looked up because of this movie. He was one of the original kings of comedy, fairly well-known black comedian, very, very likable, very funny. And some of the best scenes in the movie are him trying to win Edward Norton over and failing because yeah. Edward will not talk to a black person for the longest time.
1: He has this stern like I don't need to talk to you, you know, I'm just going to do my job and get over it. And and it's really it's neat because it's clear from go. At first you think maybe oh maybe he just doesn't know that uh that Edward Norton is is this racist guy and and so he's just, you know, talking to him like a normal guy. And then he says something that makes you realize, "Oh, oh no, he does know and he's talking to him anyway. He's joking around with him anyway." Well, that's makes him a better person than probably me in the same situation. (laughs)
0: Well, okay. Here's the quote. Here's the quote that I like from the scene. It's very important. Like, like you said, Lamont just jokes around. You think he's not serious, but Lamont knows the way of prison. He knows how prison works, this little black guy. And he says, you know, he's joking around and Edward Norton will not talk to him. And then Lamont says, listen, buddy, like in the joint, you're the N word, not me. So you better be careful in here with that attitude. And, and he's very much right. He like, uh,
1: Edward Norton is outnumbered and outgunned, <laughs> um, and, uh, his, his little, well, well, we'll, we'll get to that later. But anyway, um, now Edward Norton is in with the white supremacist gang in the prison. That's, that's his little, his click we'll call it, but he sees something that he doesn't like. He sees one of the other, one of the main white supremacists is off making a deal with uh, a hispanic uh, inmate and he he says something to to one of the other top guys he's like what what is he doing he's he's making deals with the enemy like this is not edward norton is a purist he's he believes he's drinking the kool-aid man and these guys maybe they're kind of hypocrites and he doesn't like it and the other guy does not like that he doesn't like it
0: yeah let's uh let's clarify this for people who have not watched this recently. Edward Norton talks the talk like we are white. We do not hang out with anybody else. They are all inferior. But he sees the way prison works. Prison is all about politics. And they're very strange bedfellows. And I will say this. I don't talk about this much. But I one of the things I do in my uh, my uh, spare time is uh, prison outreach. I have pen pals in prison and stuff. And I kind of write to them and help them with educational materials. So I know stories like this are very true that there's very odd politics in prison and you do not want to make the wrong enemies and what edward norton does he starts back talking to the whites here and he says you know you guys shouldn't be talking to the mexicans and the whites are like uh we're going to do whatever we want you better shut your mouth you don't know who you are and what's going to happen very quickly is the whites are going to turn on him in a horrific scene, almost as horrific as the curb stomping, and it will change Edward Norton's entire worldview that perhaps his people are not the ones that are going to always protect him.
1: But we get we get a, a nice build up to that that scene where we're juxtaposing uh, the hypocrisy that he sees uh, within his his own little skinhead group and the genuinely kind of kind uh way that the that that his coworker in the in the laundry detail is, is treating him he's he he kind of makes a game out of trying to get edward norton to talk to him and eventually succeeds and 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 there's some there's some of the most genuinely fun uh scenes again this is a very memorable for being in only maybe i'd guess like six minutes total of the movie. He's one of the more memorable characters because he's very funny and he's very warm towards uh, this very obviously skinhead um, who who hates him.
0: Yeah, and it's probably the only warmth Derek has ever had in his life.
1: Honestly, ba- you know, based on the other flashbacks, yeah.
0: Okay, let, let's talk about how he wins him over.
1: Yeah, so so eventually he gets him
0: to laugh. Yeah, Lamont Lamont gets into laugh.
1: Yeah, and, and it's it's honestly it it rings very very true because that's you can win people over with a laugh, man. And he, he starts I, I forget the exact jokes that he makes, but it's it's about like um, sex. You know, he he's he's talking about how you need to be nice now that you're in the joint. You know, you got to be nice to your girlfriend when she comes to visit you. You know, you can fight out there but here you don't know if she's going to leave and go have sex with somebody else and and he's he's mimicking the the girlfriend off having sex with other people and stuff and he eventually gets a laugh out of Edward Norton and and that's kind of it that he he cracked the veneer and and now now he's in next time we cut to the two of them they're actually they're having like a a fun debate about basketball because he's he's He got through to the guy.
0: Yeah. Lamont, the, uh, the black coworker wins him over first by doing an impression of of Edward Norton as a KKK member makes him laugh because it's so ridiculous. And then, yeah, the discussion about makeup sex gets Edward Norton to laugh. And like you said, and now we bought, talk to, we cut to them bonding over Lakers versus Celtics as just any two people would talk about. Yeah. So, like, the veneer of these blacks as subhuman creatures that Edward Norton has thought of his whole life is now broken. Lamont is like his only friend in prison, and that's going to escalate very quickly when we get the rape scene. Right.
1: So uh, Edward Norton continues uh, his protest of the uh, the hypocrisy that he sees within the other white supremacists and eventually calls it out uh, and publicly disses uh, the group by refusing to sit with them, uh, which is, you know, I, I don't know much about prison, but I know that that's not a smart move. And uh, and so Edward Norton's in the shower uh, and all of a sudden everybody clears out of the shower, even the guard, and, uh, and in comes a bunch of white supremacists and, uh, they, they pin him against the wall and, uh, and rape him. It's not unlike, uh, unlike a lot of, uh, uh I suppose prison rape scenes in, in other movies. This is pretty clearly a, you know, putting him in, a putting him in his place type of thing and not a, You know, horny prison mates need to get it from somewhere. I'm going to make you my bitch type of thing. This is a you need to learn a lesson. And here we are to teach you the lesson.
0: And this scene goes on for a while and it's graphic and it's very unpleasant. And it's the whole time you see Edward Norton's face as he's being taken from behind by this big white supremacist who's much bigger than him. Yeah. And you just see the confusion. Like he... It has never encountered his worldview that white people could hurt white people.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and here we have like, again, to add to the confusion again, I think that this is a very, uh, as far as I know, um, realistic take on, on how, like, how would you change somebody's worldview when they're that deep in, how do you reach a, a white supremacist like this? And I think that this, this movie very intelligently shows how and, and it's not no one thing uh, really reaches him, and no one person is trying to uh, reach him, but first, he has to see that the other side isn't all bad, and then he has to see that his own side is is yeah. bad. Um, and he has to see both sides of that coin um, relatively at the same time in order to to bring about a change. Um, And then the next thing is uh, the principal uh, who we haven't seen
0: since the very beginning of the movie. Yeah, let me let me let me jump in here. I have heard some criticism of this movie that Edward Norton's turn against racism. He turns back to the good side happens way too quickly. Now, I don't agree with that. I I think it's a a 90-minute movie. Like, there's only so much you can show. You're not going to show every little step of him coming to the conclusion that maybe his worldview was wrong. I think the movie personally does a really good job of showing how someone's worldview could switch. But it's gradual. You know, he, re- he realizes that Lamont isn't horrible. Lamont makes him laugh. He realizes Lamont is cool. He realizes the whites are hypocrites. He realizes then he gets like, raped and attacked by the whites. He realizes he has no friends. To me, it seems very natural and logical how this might happen. But I will say that's one of the criticisms you see of this movie, that it happens a little too quickly.
1: I, I mean, I, I can agree with that criticism in that, yes, this is not entirely realistic that it happens so quickly. However, I I think you're right. It's a 90 minute movie. We don't have time to go into every little bit of nuance. I feel like we get the impression and, and I, I believe it. I buy it. I, the, I think that those two elements would change anybody's worldview. Yeah. I, I, I buy it. You know, this, this isn't a, a four season long thing where we have hour upon hour upon hour to, to show the, the slow transformation of, Of a of a high school chemistry teacher into a drug kingpin, where we get to see the full nuanced transformation. It's a ninety minute movie. We have to tell it a little quicker.
0: Yeah, although we do have the scene that you were just leading into with Principal Sweeney, and this is an important one. I think people forget about this scene. This is this is very pivotal, where the principal shows up and Derek is in the infirmary. You know, he's been raped. He's he's torn up on the inside. He's crying. He's Hurt. He doesn't know what to do. This is not what he envisioned, how racial relations worked in the real world. And the principal Sweeney, who again is black, we have to point out, comes and visits him in prison and says, you know, Derek, I knew you when you were a kid. You were a gifted kid. You're too smart to still believe all this racist nonsense. And then Sweeney says... You may not know this, but I was once like you. I've been in prison. I used to be very angry. I was militant. I thought the white man was against me. I thought everybody was against me. I was angry. And he says, this is what I see in you, Derek, is that you're going to go down the path I avoided. He's like, ask yourself this question, Derek. Anything that you've ever done, all the rage, all the anger, all the acting out, has any of that ever done anything to make your life even a little better? It's a very interesting question because Derek sees the truth right then. He's like, oh, my God, I have never done anything that's actually made my life better.
1: And, and I really appreciate the the principle um, g- gives a very good, albeit very uh, short, speech here that's really perfect. It's really poignant and it's really – it gets right to the root cause. He points out that that he himself – uh, was in that same boat, and, and and he makes it very clear that that uh, that anyone can get dragged into this hateful worldview of blaming everyone else for your problems, and and when you do that, how how poisoning it is for your own life, and uh, and that this is this is just another uh, a symptom of that, and that your even if your problems are the result of someone else. Blaming other people for them and, and wallowing in the hatred of those people who you view as, as, as being responsible for your problems doesn't actually solve those problems. Doing something abouting, about them, changing your circumstances, whether they're self-inflicted or imposed on you is the only way to get out of, um, the, the chains, um, of, you know, I, I, hatred, I guess.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad, again, at the start of the podcast, you said this is one of the movies that makes you want to go out in the world and do something positive. Yeah. Like, this is the message you get from this movie. Like, so many people, you know, they have all these self-imposed problems. You're just angry about stuff. And this movie basically says, well, why don't you do something about it and stop being angry all the time? And that's the message that Derek gets. And Derek never has rage in the rest of the movie now that he realizes that he's his own worst enemy. But there's a double whammy here is that... The reason Derek gets out of prison in one play, in one piece is because of black people. Because the principal here will start putting in good words for Derek with the parole board. He ends up, I think, getting Derek's sentence shortened maybe a little bit. Maybe there's some parole in there. But then the second part of that is when Derek ends up He's a lone wolf in prison. He has nobody protecting him. And in theory, when you don't have the whites protecting you, the blacks, the Mexicans, any other group, you're a fair game for them to attack. Right. Nobody ever attacks Derek in the last two years of prison. And as he's leaving, he realizes it's because Lamont, his one friend, the black friend, yeah. has asked the brothers to leave this guy alone. This guy's cool. Please, is a favor for me. Do not hurt him. And Derek realizes the only person who has ever looked out for him or helped him in his life are these black people. And it really opens his eyes to what life is.
1: And you asked before, uh, and I want to touch back on it. If I thought that it was uh, amateur filmmaking to, uh, to have the film be in, in black and white uh, for the, for the earlier stuff. A, I, I, I gave you my answer before in that. I don't think that it's particularly amateurish, but I think it's, pointedly used better here because it aligns with uh, Derek's worldview he he very much sees things as black and white at the time period that the movie is in black and white and when we shift to color it 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 aligns with Derek's worldview change where now he sees things in in uh, I, I, I suppose in shades of gray but we'll'll we'll, we'll, you know call it color uh, now yeah.
0: And, but it's just really neat seeing that this one guy who didn't have to help Derek just did, and it made his life so much better. Yeah. Just the smallest things can help somebody in prison. This guy did something selflessly, and as Derek is leaving the prison, Lamont is still in prison. Lamont is on this trumped-up charge. The cops racistly gave him six years for this stupid crime where he dropped a the TV. They said he threw it at an officer, yeah. and Lamont says the one thing that Derek – the last thing Derek hears as he's leaving prison, Lamont says – Take it easy on the brothers from now on. Yeah. And that's really the lesson. Derek gets out of the prison and he is a changed man. He has seen life for what it is. He just doesn't have hate in his heart. He realizes life is more nuanced than people think it is. He gets out of prison. He sees this whole white supremacist crap that he was in before. It makes him sick. But now he's told his brother about it. And his brother's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you went through that. And Derek's like, I'm not sorry. I'm glad I'm a better person for it. I just want to make sure you do not go down the path that I did because this is where it leads.
1: Well, and I think that this this is really important, and I think that this is one of the things that makes this movie really excellent, um, and and makes it stand uh, above other similar movies. Is is that fact that he's transformed by Lamont by by having this guy has absolutely no reason whatsoever to be kind to this guy. You know, it, it, point out a guy uh, – point out somebody to me that hates me for no reason because of, of characteristics that I can't change about myself but and despises me and thinks that I'm inferior to him. I have no reason to be nice to that guy. I have no reason to go out of my way to help that guy, and this guy does. This guy is so good. This guy is so kind and so loving – That he does his best to break through this guy's veneer, makes him laugh, is is goofing off with this guy, and when he has no reason to, and then goes way beyond that to like protect this guy, to make sure that no harm comes to him, and he has no reason to do that. It's kind of it reminds me, or or rather, the scene in Three Billboards reminds me of this. um, The scene with
0: the orange juice. Uh, Have you seen Three Billboards? I have, but I don't specifically remember that scene.
1: Well, uh, Sam Rockwell throws – oh, I forget uh, the actor's name. Throws him out of a window early on in the movie and then gets – after being burned severely, third-degree burns all over his body, gets put in the hospital and is in an extremely vulnerable position and asks for orange juice, I want to say, but he, he can't move essentially he's in a, in a in a hospital bed and he can't move and the guy he realizes that the guy who's sharing his hospital room is the guy who's in the hospital because he threw him out of a window and he didn't get in trouble for it because he was a cop <laughs> and the guy gets out of his hospital bed and you're like, "Oh man, this guy's dead like you you're as an audience you're expecting this to just like he's gonna beat the shit out of sam rockwell and instead he just brings him a glass of orange juice and he puts a straw in it so that he can drink it and that's it he he chooses the guy that he has no reason to to help the guy that he has every reason to beat the shit out of to get even with and he he stops that cycle of hate and that's the moment that 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 is, I think, the moment that leads to Sam Rockwell's transformation in Three Billboards. So maybe Three Billboards is drawing from uh, from American History X. Um, but the, the two moments, I think, are similar um, in that, I think, the only way you break through to these people who have these hateful attitudes, who have these hateful uh, ideals and ideologies is is through love it's not through it's not through lecturing them it's not through shaming them those those are tactics that don't work um but love i I feel like is how you break through to those people
0: okay and now we're going to talk about the elephant in the room because i agree with you love is how you break through hate and that is the whole point of this movie that legacies have to end somehow I think that
1: that's the, isn't
0: that the slogan for the movie? Some legacies must end. That was the tagline of the movie. Some legacies must end. And if this had been the end of the movie, this would be a good movie. But this isn't, this is not the end of the movie. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to tell you now, unfortunately there's spoilers here. So you can either turn this off or listen at your own peril. This movie has a horribly tragic ending And it's it's kind of a mixed message. It's an interesting ending because there's several ways the movie could go. It's not the way they chose is very powerful, but I'm not sure it's the message they were trying to go for. And I will set this up so we can talk about it. We're getting kind of late in the podcast, but I'll skim through here that. You think this is the end of the movie. Derek has come out of prison. He's a changed man. He's no longer a skinhead. He is going to stop his brother from becoming a skinhead. And his brother even says, okay, I don't want to do this. You know, I I I believe you. I respect you. I've always looked up to you. I will learn from you. I And they go home. And Danny takes down all his racist stuff, all the Nazi propaganda, all the white power stuff. And you know, the legacy has ended. Danny will probably not follow in Derek's footsteps. But the problem is... The cycle of violence will go on with or without Danny's participation because earlier in the movie, Danny made an enemy, the black kid in the bathroom that he blew smoke in the kid's face. And now we cut to an ominous scene that Danny has renounced all his racist ties. But we see this group of black kids driving down the street going right by Danny's apartment and they mime a little drive by motion with their fingers like they're going to shoot him up the next day. Yeah. And this movie's going to get real dark here
1: so after that uh, Edward Furlong the younger brother finishes his paper um, and and we see another flashback to that that kind of places the source of the racism the the legacy at least as far back as as Edward Furlong is familiar uh, to some subtle comments made by their dad uh, that, that clearly plant the seed uh, Edward Norton they're they're sitting around the dinner table and Edward Norton is very excited about this new teacher and this is like eight eight years ago in the past this is way back in the past this is way way back yeah edward norton is not a skinhead he's got a lot of hair he he's clearly a much younger guy the the dad's still alive uh and he he mentions uh that he's really excited about this this new teacher and he's reading native son and the dad says some i mean honestly some stuff now that sounds like some pretty typical uh I don't want to I don't want to get too political but like some current talking points I guess. You know, and starts, you know, complaining about affirmative action, talks about what again, as we mentioned before, the 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 points seem seem intelligent at first. He he's just at first he's just saying like, "Look, man, I when somebody when I need to have somebody that's got my back, I don't I want somebody who's the best at their job to save my life." Uh, when my life is in their hands, not somebody who, who got the job over somebody better because of their skin color. And then he starts getting into, and then, you know, and then he goes too far. But we see that this is very impressionable. And Edward Norton immediately backtracks and immediately, you know, wants to please his dad. And, and we see. This is the seeds that are planted. Edward Norton at this point, he's just kind of like lightly agreeing with his dad. And and obviously when his dad dies later is the bigger push and, and other things. But this this is where the legacy is getting passed from father to son.
0: Yeah. And again, you can assume Edward Norton's father heard it from his father who heard it from his father. And again, yeah, the dad, the firefighter, this is years before the firefighter was killed. Starts off by questioning, why are we reading black books in U.S. history class or in literature class? And it starts off as just questioning. And then by the end of the discussion is, you know, this guy, Sweeney, he's just feeding you N-word bullshit. Right. And Derek's like, oh, I see that now. So you just see the cycle will continue and continue and continue. And so that sets up the especially tragic ending here where young Danny is about to be killed.
1: Yeah. Um, so, so the next scene, and I think that this is a, a really, a really subtle, but nice scene, uh, Edward Norton, it, it's just a, a, a great moment of Edward Norton coming out of the shower and looking at himself in the mirror with all of his tattoos and, and, and this is long haired. This is now present Edward Norton. And, and he's got these tattoos, um, all over himself, um, that, I mean, I guess he can get laser surgery, but, like, they're, they're kind of permanently there. Reminds me of back when I was waiting tables, we had this guy come in who was just covered in swastikas and uh, th- this type of tattoos. Only he had them, like, on his face. His eyebrow, uh, one of his eyebrows, uh, I remember, was shaved off, and his, the,
0: the, the shape of his eyebrow was swastikas. <laughs> well, that's, that's dedication right there
1: yeah no it was he had face tattoos uh he came in i think with a with a with a girl uh so maybe I assume his girlfriend or whatever and i remember it was very memorable because the per like he sat at a black server's table the the person who had him his table was like the managers were like Are, do you want to take him do you want to have somebody else take him and he was like no i'll I'll, I'll go you know it's fine and he waited on the guy, and and we were all like, we were dying to know, like what happened. Apparently, the guy was extremely polite, extremely nice. He didn't say a lot, but he was what when he did, he was very polite. He didn't complain about anything, and he tipped extremely well. And we were all baffled by this, and we were like, you know, maybe, maybe he like, may, maybe he's repented of that. Maybe he just is is stuck with all these tattoos after having changed and being now that's probably not the case because he probably let his eyebrow grow in but uh but that that was what we thought maybe because you know you get these tattoos and you're you're stuck like you're stuck with them forever you know he he's stuck with all of these evil imagery all over his body um that he no longer agrees with and I, i just think that it's a neat moment that we get there
0: yeah his past will always be visible no matter who he is now Right, okay, so let's go to the end of the movie where Derek has renounced all his ties, his hair is grown back in, he's putting on his tie, he has decided he's going to get his family back together. you know, they live in poverty now basically because he wasn't here he's going to go get his old job, whatever I'm sure he sold stereos or something he's going to move them to a better house he has saved his brother, and everything is good in the la- in the world of Derek Vineyard except. That morning, he walks his brother to school, Danny to school, and he leaves him there. They go out for breakfast, blah, blah, blah. And then as he's leaving, he notices. He's like, you know, I just realized I saw a car do a drive-by by our house last night. He assumed they were coming after him. He thought those were the white supremacists coming after him for breaking ties. It suddenly crosses his mind that they might be after his brother, Danny, that Danny may have made some enemies. And that is indeed what happens is... It's really a replay of the earlier scene in the movie. And it's just, again, a huge gut punch. I remember seeing this in the theater and going, oh my God, what a gut punch of an ending. That Danny has decided to not become a white supremacist. He's going to follow in his brother's footsteps the good way. He has renounced all his hatred. But unbeknownst to him, you know, he made enemies earlier in the movie, this black bully. And the black kid is waiting for him in the bathroom. And as Danny is taking a piss, he turns around face-to-face face with the kid he blew smoke in his face earlier in the movie, and the black kid pulls out a gun and shoots him. And Danny's basically brain splatter on behind him in the bathroom, and Edward Norton knows it's going to happen. He realizes right before it happens, oh, my God, my brother's in trouble, runs back to the school, and he sees his brother dead. And, uh, of course, even though the legacy of hate has ended, the legacy of violence has not, and his brother paid the price.
1: Yeah, so uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think that that's a it's a great way for the movie to end. Their their past sins come back. It, it is it it it's never too late to turn around, but it's it's sometimes too late to uh, to prevent the past from uh, from coming back to haunt you. Yeah, no, it's it's. I think it's a great ending. I think it's the right ending uh, for the yes. movie. Um, it helps. Go, sorry, go ahead. I
0: just want to bring one thing up. Do you know about the alternate ending history to this movie? That sounds vaguely familiar. Refresh my memory. I just read this the other day. Now, you I remember I said at the start, there was a lot of controversy over this movie, that Edward Norton and the director had different views of how the movie should go. Yeah. Well, the original scripted ending was Danny dies... Edward Norton is traumatized that his brother dies, and it ends with a shot of Edward Norton in front of his mirror at home, shaving his head again and becoming a skinhead again. Oh. Edward Norton refused to shoot that scene, and that's one of the reasons he and the director split ways, because Edward Norton's like... It should end with Derek's, you know, his rebirth, his seeing the light. He has a tragedy. His brother dies. That's where the end movie ends. But Edward is a fundamentally saved character. But the script wanted him to go back and the, st- the cycle would start up all over again. Interesting. And it's a, I'm, I'm personally very happy that Edward Norton refused to shoot that ending because it would render the whole prison scene meaningless. So I, I'm yeah. really happy that he stuck to his guns because I love this ending. I think it's very powerful. I think it really makes the movie even more depressing the other way, even though it might be a ballsier ending. I just do not like Derek turning Nazi again. I do. I, I'm glad that didn't happen.
1: I can understand the desire to to do that and to show him slot him backsliding like that as the result of like one stupid act of hatred is all it takes. I think that we see this now in, in today's uh, political climate, that all it takes is one person being nasty to push people really far in the other direction. Um, and it takes a hundred kind interactions to, to reel them halfway back in, you know? Um, so a damaging inter interaction like that, um, I can see why the filmmaker would do it. I think that I agree with you, but I, I am torn because now I can, I can, I can see the value in doing it that way too. But I do think that it, the way that it ends currently uh, gives the movie a much more haunting uh, feeling and, and and a much more of a compulsion to get up and do something. If, 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 if we end on like, and that's what pushed Edward Norton back into that life, it does kind of negate a lot of the lessons that we learned over the course of the movie. And, and it feels, it feels very much like, and the book is closed. The fact that it ends with the book feeling still open is part of what gives it that feeling of like, I need to get up and do something about this. Cause you don't feel like it's really over. You know, the story feels like it's still going. And if it ends with Edward Norton going back, it feels like the story ends, you know. Yeah, and he
0: very well could be back. We just don't see it. Yeah, it's open ended. You don't know what happens now. All we know is that violence will catch up to you eventually, even if you, him, if you yourself have taken yourself out of it. Sometimes it will catch up to you anyway. Hate begets hate, and the movie does
1: a really good job subtly, uh, kind of in between the lines, it throughout the the discussions and stuff uh, that we see because. Um, like the 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 dinner table discussion with Elliot Gould the uh the the angry uh, speech before breaking into the the supermarket the shock on Edward Norton's face when he hears uh the his workmate what's his name in the prison uh Lamont Lamont when he when he hears Lamont saying no i got this much time for stealing a tv uh, and he doesn't believe that. He doesn't believe that that could possibly be true. that really, that moment really clashes with his worldview. Um, but in between a lot of these little little interactions where they're talking about society at large, the filmmaker is painting a picture of of cultures clashing with each other and infractions that each keep escalating. It, it's it be, It's becoming a very Hatfields and McCoy thing where we, well we have to react to do something about this side and it just keeps escalating most of the arguments that they have most of the 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 ideology that we hear it starts with intelligent thoughtful not all that wrong thoughts and then it takes a sharp turn into into very pointedly racist stuff but but we're given a picture that that these white people that, that become the racists, they have something to be upset about. They're not doing this in a vacuum. They're not just dumb, you know, caricature racists. They have genuine problems. The 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 gang violence uh, that's being committed by the black people in the movie is not portrayed as something that these white characters are imagining. It's a real thing that they are then uh, taking too far in their retru- retribution. And the movie's clear, in, especially in this last scene, that a lot of that black gang violence is a result of the the, the situations that these black
0: characters are dealing yeah, with. Yeah, and it's possible the white gang members did something to them first. So it's all like, who knows how this started?
1: Well, it, I mean, Edward, Edward Furlong very clearly is is making a stance against that kid. And I don't think for a second that that kid doesn't know this is the, the white supremacist in the school. You know, everybody would know that kind of thing. You know, he's a skinhead and he follows the kid back to his, to the basketball court where he's with his brother and is giving him threatening looks. Like Edward Furlong started this. Now he didn't, you know, he didn't bring it to, to guns, but, um, but he's pointedly a racist. Like if, if you were that kid, um, if you were a, a, a black kid and, and, and you're being followed by a white supremacist skinhead, yeah, you might be inclined to uh, to to act first before they show up and shoot you, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, they very well could be having the same speech in the parking lot that Edward Norton had earlier in the movie. Like these guys are coming after us. We got a band together. We need protect. like you can just see it from right. both sides and how it just escalates and escalates. And yeah. And then the movie ends. We get hauntingly, after Edward Furlong has been killed, we get the paper that he had written for Sweeney, and it's all about how hate is baggage, we need to give up hate, we need to give up baggage, and he quotes Abraham Lincoln, saying basically, uh, when I look at a man Cross from me, we must not be enemies, we must be friends, because if I say you're my enemy, then you become my enemy, and then it just continues. So it's all about how we need to stop the cycle, and it's shown over the footage of dead Edward Furlong, and it's just a horrible, haunting gut punch of a movie. Yeah. And like I said, this is when I saw this in the theater for the first time and the lights go on and I look around and it's everyone standing up and I'm like the only white guy in this all black theater. I'm like, <laughs> I had nothing to do with that movie, guys. Like I, like I, I felt so awkward. i like, that's a testament to the power of this movie. How I just how strong the message is, I believe. The thing that this
1: movie does differently from a lot of similar movies is I feel like some movies present the solution as being too easy. And, and I'm looking at movies like, like maybe Crash or, or Hidden Figures. You know, some of these movies, uh, Green Book that, uh, that a lot of people really criticized as being like, we solved racism. Boy, that was, you know, like a white guy taught a black guy to eat fried chicken and now we fixed racism, you know, and, and it presents it as, as being a little too easy. A couple of people become friends and, now everything's good. And I think that that I think that there's some truth to that like I don't despise those movies um, but I, I can understand why people are like that that this is disneyified. Um, and then I think that there's other movies on the other side that present it as being an impossible task or a close to impossible task that just kind of shrug their shoulders uh, or, or are more interested in in, wagging a finger at the the, the Edward Norton types of characters. This is the one movie, the unique movie out of the bunch, as far as I know, that shows how brutally difficult it is to to extract one single person from that kind of hateful ideology and how, how conversely, easy it is for that to continue, for that cycle to continue because all it takes is one person pushing you down that path to uh, to continue down that path and how it can spiral out of control. Very difficult, and it shows how difficult it is that only love to the extreme, like somebody going out, Sweeney specifically, Edward Norton later, and um, gosh, I've, I've forgotten his name for the 16th time, the, the, the other inmate. Lamont. Lamont. Um, these three characters... Go to extreme lengths far beyond what the average person would to, to try to reach somebody and, and they do, and they do it by kindness and love and not, not giving up, not writing off these people as, as being hopeless and lost, as, as being somebody worth saving and not never giving up on saving them. Um, and I think that that's the only way. And yes, it, you know, it's a near impossible task, sure. But uh, but I think that that's what this movie – that's one of, sorry, the things that this movie has, has really going for it.
0: Yeah, just a – without question, one of the most powerful movies I've covered on Staff Picks, and it's always – interesting the tone of these episodes because like this is one of those movies you will never forget you'll watch it and you'll you'll like everyone will take a different message from the movie too which i think is interesting but just one i have never forgotten and like i said i can still remember seeing it in the theater how many movies do you remember the exact feeling of seeing it in the theater like where you were what theater what the mood was like i will never forget this movie so i just uh really am glad that you were able to come by and talk about it uh Yeah, I I just thought it was a good discussion, and I thought we delved into some interesting points that we don't normally bring up on staff picks.
1: For sure. Thanks for having me. I I also – I can remember the exact TV, you know, where I – you know, I I remember – and very few movies do I remember where I was when I watched it for the first time. And and there's so many really iconic scenes uh, in this movie that – that, that really stick with you. And and it's a movie I, I, I haven't seen very many times. And, and yet it really, it, it, it's a very powerful film and it sticks with you.
0: To this day, I still think Edward Norton should have won Best Actor. I think this was his crowning. I don't know how he's ever going to top this. Although we should not gloss over Edward Furlong, who I think does a really good job in a tough role, the p- young punk brother. Yeah, just I think it's really well done, well acted. It got nominated for some stuff at the time. It didn't win, but it's one of those movies that I really think. I if you've never seen it, I think you should at least once because you will not forget it. If you haven't seen it in a while, you should go catch up on it again. But uh, yeah, just a one of the best movies so far I've done on staff picks.
1: I think it's on IMDb's top 250 at like in the 30s. It's very yeah. very high. It's. Uh... It's it's an excellent movie. It's absolutely one of the best movies ever made.
0: Well, I had no idea it was ranked number 30. Perhaps it doesn't need more love. Well, I think it's like I think
1: it's like it's not number 30. It's it's in the 30s. I want to say it's like 35 or 32 or something
0: like that. Yet to this day, it's still hilarious because the director sued to take his name off it and hates it with a passion. So, <laughs> Yeah,
1: sued to take his name off one of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah.
0: Okay, so Austin, I just want to thank you for stopping by. And again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at StaffPixpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love. And I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. Talk to you guys later. Bye.
1: So I guess this is where I tell you what I learned. My conclusion, right? Well, my conclusion is hate is baggage. Life's too short to be pissed off all the time. It's just not worth it. Derek says it's always good to end a paper with a quote. He says someone else has already said it best, so if you can't topple it, steal from them and go out strong. So I picked a guy I thought you'd like. We are not enemies, but friends. You must not be enemies. Though passion may have strain, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic chords of memory will swell when again touched, as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature.